Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 4. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. One of the common phrases we use to comfort someone in distress or trouble is this. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. It's not the end of the world. It's not the end of the world. As if that's a bad thing. If you belong to Jesus, the end of the world is the best thing that could ever happen. In fact, that's how the Bible ends. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. If you do not belong to Jesus, then I agree. It will be horribly worse than you can imagine. In the Bible, the study of the end of the world is called eschatology. It comes from the Greek word for last, eschatos. And so the study of how we get from where we are here to paradise again on a renewed earth, eschatology, has garnered no small debate among biblical scholars. There are lots of views, post-millennial, ah-millennial, preterist, partial preterist, historic pre-mill, and dispensational pre-mill with a pre, mid, or post-rapture of the church. There are a whole lot of views. I know your pan-mill is going to all pan out in the end. So many views that the study of eschatology can become dizzying. However, the Bible does not tell us what it tells us about the end of time to make us dizzy, but to make us Holy. This teaching about the end should govern everything you do every day and fill you with a spirit of encouragement, hope, and a zeal for righteousness. Eschatology, then, is immensely practical. And that's Paul's point. And rather than make us dizzy, in fact, have you ever been on a merry-go-round the only way for me to survive a merry-go-round is to find a fixed point every time I go around. Fix your eyes on that point and you won't get dizzy. Paul's fixed point is what he calls in this text the day of the Lord. That's synonymous with the second coming of Jesus. So why is it coming up in his epistle? Apparently he's received word that the believers in Thessalonica are suffering under some confusion and they have questions in regard to the second coming. One question, have our loved ones who've died prior to the second coming, are they going to miss out on something? Very deep concern about that. 
Secondly, should we who are alive, should we fear the second coming of Jesus? Thirdly, is it somehow possible to miss the appearing of Jesus? And fourth question, we have these questions today ourselves. Do people get a second chance after Jesus comes again? The answer to every one of those questions is no. You can't possibly miss the day of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus, the parousia of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here are the four reasons from the text. Number one, it's predicted. Number two, it's audible. Number three, it's swiftly sudden. And number four, it is inescapable. No one will miss the day of the Lord. Let's look at those four words and see if we can uh, garner a little bit more understanding about this to be anticipated and delighted in event. Ultimately, we live for the second coming of Jesus. We're given this teaching not to make us dizzy, but to make us holy, filled with confidence, righteousness. First of all, it's predicted. Verse 1, Paul begins now as to the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Why? Apparently, when Paul was in Thessalonica for that short period of time, he taught them about this event. In fact, I think it's safe to assume that we can summarize Paul's teaching of Thessalonica this way. He said, the Old Testament promises Jesus is coming. Jesus arrived on earth saying, I'm fulfilling the Old Testament promises. Jesus promised that when you trust in him, his absolutely flawless, perfect living under the law of God is yours as a gift. Jesus promised that the moment you trust in him, his death on the cross, removing the judgment of God for your sins, is your death. You'll never be judged for your sins, Jesus promised. Jesus promised, I will conquer the grave and rise from the dead on the third day, ensuring you too will have everlasting life and a glorified body like mine. Jesus promised. Jesus promised he would ascend to his Father and there begin a reign over the nations for the good of his people and the glory of his name. Jesus promised. And he promised, this is the one that hasn't been fulfilled yet. It's the one promise that hasn't been kept yet. I am coming again to receive you to myself. That's essentially what Paul taught them. And so the, the believers in Thessalonica lived this way because they lived by faith. They believed these magnificent promises. God cannot lie. God keeps his promises. And so the point is the day of the Lord is coming because God said so. Now this phrase, the day of the Lord, Jesus uses it, Paul uses it, we're going to see that Peter uses it, is not new to the, Old Test to the New Testament. It's a very rich image based in the Old Testament, particularly the prophets. In the Old Testament, the day of the Lord sort of has a bitter and a sweet side. The bitter side is sometimes God says to Israel, his people, I'm coming to judge you for your sins. That's called the day of the Lord. And Israel's enemies got their day of the Lord when God judged them. And sometimes the day of the Lord had a, a sweet side. God says, I'm coming to bless you, 
to do great things for you. That was also called the day of the Lord. I want you to think of it this way. If you're out hiking in the mountains and your goal is to ascend this one granddaddy of a summit, on the way up the mountain, you come to different peaks and ridges. You come to a ridge, oh, that's a neat view, but we keep going. And the summit's out of sight right now. We keep hiking, we come to another place, another ridge. That's, that's a neat view. And finally you get to the summit. And each of these places of views are days of the Lord that are anticipating the final great day of the Lord. And that is, in fact, the second coming of Jesus. When the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, Peter interprets this event in terms of the prophet Joel's promise that the day of the Lord is coming when God is going to pour out his Spirit on all flesh. So in a sense, Pentecost is a day of the Lord, a day of great blessing. The Spirit has come, but in that prophecy also is promised catastrophe. And it seems like there's a splitting there of the day of the Lord. There's a partial fulfillment in Acts 2, and we are awaiting the final granddaddy of them all, that final summit, when Jesus comes again as he promised to end earth history as we know it. And as the Bible is prone to do, extremely important concepts got, get lots of different labels. Right? The love of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God, the kindness of God, all, all these kinds of things essentially pointing to, uh, pointing to the same thing. This also the case with the day of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus. They are synonymous. Now you can see on the outline I'm going to run through a bunch of scriptures, but there's a method to my madness, and it's simply this. There's a popular teaching in the church among evangelical Christians that there's an event coming called the secret rapture of the church, and the church is going to be wrapped. There's a whole book series developed on this about 20 years ago called Left Behind. And it's based on this view that the Believers are going to be raptured off the earth, and then there's going to be tribulation. Jesus is going to come again, reign literally on the earth for a thousand years, then the second coming. I want to show you that I don't think that is what Paul has in mind in this text. So bear with me. It may seem a little tedious. But I'm showing you that the day of the Lord, the second coming, are being gathered to Jesus. They're all the same thing. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, the day of the Lord is, is referred to the wrath to come. 2.19, the Lord Jesus at his coming. 3.13, the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. 4.15, the coming of the Lord. 4.16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Chapter 5, verse 2, our text. The day of the Lord. Verse 3, sudden destruction will come. Verse 4, that day. Later in chapter 5, the coming of our Lord Jesus. Those are all describing the same event, the end of earth history, the parousia, the second coming of Jesus, the day of the Lord. Into chapter, uh, into 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, the day the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Chapter 2, 1.10, he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. And then 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2. You'll see all three concepts in this verse. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, that's that reference in chapter 4, being caught up in the air to meet Jesus in the air. Same thing for Paul. The coming of our Lord, our gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us 
to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Three terms for the same event. Okay? When Jesus comes again, it's over. That's the day of the Lord. That's when we're caught up to meet him in the air and the bodies are raised from the grave. Just for grins, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 7, verse 8, the day of our Lord Jesus. Same concept, two different phrases. 1 Corinthians 15, each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. What happens when Jesus comes? Then comes the end, when Jesus hands over the kingdom to God and Father, when he abolishes all rule and authority and power. And in that same text, verse 50, the last trumpet blows, and it's the abolition of death. Peter does the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 3. The point, you can't miss this. In fact, really better than predicted is the word promise, because we can make predictions that don't come true. This is a prediction that's a promise, and it absolutely will happen. Okay, first point. Can't miss it. Secondly, it's audible. I'm going to reach back into 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, because I didn't unpack this last week on Resurrection Sunday, where Paul writes, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Does that sound secret or quiet to you? Doesn't to me. <laughs> it sounds really loud. <laughs> so what's a cry of command? When do people shout? We shout to get people's attention when we announce our presence. Honey, I'm home. When we warn them, be careful. And when we summons them, come in for dinner. We shout to get people's attention. In the parable of the ten virgins that Jesus taught, Matthew 24, when the bridegroom comes at midnight, there is a shout. Same concept Paul is drawing on. What about the voice of the archangel? Angels are messengers who normally come and bring announcements about news from heaven. See, never a king in history walks in before his subjects and calls them to order, everybody be quiet, sit down, I'm the king. No, somebody else does that. Even to this day in our country, when a judge walks into his courtroom, he is announced by another voice. All rise, the Honorable Michael Sherritt. Ha! Ah. And, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. We do that in our country, in this pattern. What about the trumpet of God? So we got the cry of command, Jesus is coming, cry of command, the angels, and the trumpet of God. Where do we find trumpets in the Bible? In the Old Testament, like blaring all the time. <laughs> We're told that it's Sinai, the voice of God was like a trumpet. Trumpets were used to summon a public assembly. Like at 1025, you'd, somebody would walk out on this hill and blow the trumpet and you'd all come in and you'd be in your seats at 1030. Hint, hint. <laughs> Trumpets were blown to announce a war, to summon people to war, the beginning of a war, the end of a battle. Trumpets were blown to announce the claim of kingship and trumpets were blown at a time of worship. Now you take all those things and that's exactly what happens when the Lord Jesus comes again. 
The trumpet will glow. We will hear the voice of God, Jesus speaking. We will assemble with him. He will take his rightful claim as king over all the earth. Our strife on earth, our battle on earth will be done. That trumpet will blow and Jesus will deal a blow to his enemies. And we will worship him as king of kings, lord of lords, the lamb who is slain forever and ever. Exactly what you'd expect based on the Old Testament, this trumpet. And Paul uses the uh, last trumpet image in 1 Corinthians 15. And for the sake of time, I'll let you read that on your own. We're making the point, you can't possibly miss the second coming. Thirdly, why? It is swiftly sudden. Here, Paul reaches back into the teaching of Jesus in what we call the Olivet Discourse, because Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives with his disciples They've made comments about how beautiful the buildings are across the Kidron Valley, the Temple Mount, and Jesus says every one of those things is going to be raised to the ground. He was predicting the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And he begins, and they say, when's this going to happen? What's the sign of this? And so the Olivet Discourse involves very difficult to understand, for my two cents, but also very clear teaching on the second coming of Jesus. In that teaching, Jesus uses the image of birth pangs, a woman knows she's pregnant, but look, I don't know this from experience. I know this because I've had three kids. All of a sudden, out of the blue, bang! Wow. Second coming is like that. And Jesus says it's like a thief in the night. So when are thieves most likely to come and rob your house? Under the cover of darkness. When you're not suspecting it. You're asleep. You're not aware. They're going to come in swiftly and take you by surprise. There's not a lot of thieves who in the afternoon text you and say, I'm going to break in at 3.39 a.m. They come unexpectedly. And Jesus' point is, knowing that, you are morally ready. You're watching. You're prepared. And he contrasts that to people who are not. And, he's, and their attitude, according to verse 3, is what? They're saying, peace, security, oblivious to the fact that there's a judgment day and their destruction will be sudden. This is a hard saying, but it needs to be said. When Jesus comes, the day of the Lord of unbelievable sweetness for believers, the day of the Lord, unspeakable terror if you're not in Christ. So Paul says... You're not in darkness, I'll unpack this in a few weeks. But these warnings function to do what? To awaken us. Don't live with a false sense of security. Just because you have God's material blessings and you live within geographical borders that have peace, that doesn't correspond to being at peace with God. They are different things. Does God love to bless you materially and make your borders safe? Of course never at the expense of spiritual urgency. And those things tend to put people asleep spiritually. Wealth and safety. Wealth and safety should point you to the greater pleasure of knowing and seeing Jesus. As Paul wrote of his presence in Psalm 16, in his presence, there's fullness of joy at his right hand, pleasures forever. Every pursuit of your soul for those things in this life 
must be subordinated to the greater joy, pleasure, glory of seeing Jesus and being in his presence forever. I mean, how would you describe it any different than that? Fullness of joy and pleasures forever. One of the ways you say you believe that is your regular giving. You make a statement about God's immense generosity to you and his faithfulness to care for you when five, ten minutes ago you opened your wallets and wrote that first check out of your budget. Ten percent to the Lord. You're making a statement to others, to the Lord, that you believe in his immense generosity. So these warnings are to keep us from spiritual drowsiness. But I want to make this point. The end of the world is not the primary reason to flee to Jesus. I hope if you're not in Christ this morning, you do flee to Jesus. There is a sense of uh, you're being warned by God this morning in this text. But if the only reason you flee to Jesus is out of fear, when you no longer sense fear, you're going to let up. Think back 18 years ago to 9-11 in this country. What happened right after 9-11? Churches swelled with people. Almost every church saw increased dramatic growth. People were afraid. They had questions. They were disoriented. They were fearful. And then gradually, the fear eased, and those people left church. The reason to flee to Jesus is not ultimately fear, but that he is absolutely and utterly delightful. And he is deserving and worthy of your devotion and your life. That's the reason to flee. We run to God because he's lovely. Paradise is paradise because we, it's the fulfillment of your purpose in life. The first question of the catechism, to enjoy God and glorify him forever. You'll enjoy him because you're going to see him, hear his voice, see his face, touch his hands. You're in the presence of pure love, wisdom, beauty, truth, anything you think is good about life. It's all there in the experience of the presence of Jesus. He's coming back to give us that. What could be better? That's why it's called the blessed hope. Finally, I'm simply making the point that you're never going to miss the second coming because, fourthly, it is inescapable. Destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. There are a lot of people counting on a second chance. I'm going to do my thing, and later I'll get right with God. And typically, as kids grow out of their home, and they come out from under the authority of their parents, maybe they go to college, they experience all kinds of personal liberty, they begin to think that way. And you know, I was raised with the God thing, but I I'll get back to that later. In fact, I'll strike a deal with God. He just leaves me alone for a while. I'll leave him alone. I want to say, to the degree I have thought that in my life, or I have acted that way, and I have, I am stunned at how arrogantly ignorant that is to say that about the most beautiful person in the universe. I'll get back to you later. I did this in high school. The day I turned 16, I got a job working weekends. I don't know how my, looking back, how my folks allowed this. I didn't ever go to church anymore. I was raised in the church. 
But for months and months and months, I never went. I just said to God, I'll get back to you later. You're not important. Making a paycheck's more important. Stunningly arrogant. He's the most beautiful person in the world. Beloved, the Bible is clear. There are no second chances. Hebrews says it is appointed for all men to die once, and then comes judgment. No one's getting a second chance when Jesus appears at the cry of command, the angel shouting, and the trumpet. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6:2, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. So let me say, if you know in your heart you have not given your life to Christ, you're here. Thank you for coming. This is the day. We may all say the final amen to this worship service, and Jesus comes. Jesus comes. Five minutes, ten minutes, five days, five months, five years, 500 years. We don't know. This is the day of salvation. One final thought. This is called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. It's the Lord's day. It's, if you will, payday for Jesus. It's the day Jesus gets his people. Those promised in Psalm 2, ask of me and I'll give you the nations and your inheritance. When Jesus comes, he gets his family. He gets them face to face, face to face. The people Jesus has longed for from all eternity. The ones he lived for, the ones he suffered for, the ones he died for, the ones he rules the world for, the ones he gifts his church for, the ones he poured out his spirit for, the ones he ever lives to pray for. He finally gets them face to face. It's the Lord's day. And he will be glorified as the God who loves his enemies. Somehow, you know, Paul says in, in Ephesians 2, 7, that in the ages to, to come, he will show the surpassing riches of the kindness of his grace in Christ when we are caught up to meet Jesus and transformed all of creation, all of the galaxies, as far out as you want to go, they're going to look at you as the revelation of what Jesus does with his cross. You're that. A trophy of his grace. Look how he delivers sinners. Look at the incomparable kindness of Jesus displayed in that raised up wretch who's now become Jesus' brother or sister. Yay! It's the day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's the most right thing in the universe. And Paul is simply reiterating what Jesus says. Be dressed in readiness. I'll close with this illustration. When the kids were younger and we were at the beach and, and they, we were tired of being in the water as parents, but our kids still wanted to play in the ocean, we stood at the shoreline with really heavy boots on and real heavy coats on. No. No, our kids are in the ocean. The ocean comes with peril. We stood at the edge of the water with our eyes on our kids, dressed in readiness. There wasn't much on. If you had a towel, you could throw it off. But if our kids needed us, what were we doing? We were going in after them. Dressed in readiness. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We're looking for you. We're serving you. We're loving others. We're showing mercy to the needy. We're using our gifts faithfully, revealing, revealing 
his love and mercy and his intense interest in our welfare. Let's pray. What can we say but Maranatha? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. May we be dressed in readiness, looking for and hastening the great and glorious day of the Lord. In your precious name and for your sake, Amen.